the health of land and the health of bodies are connected. the health of land and the health of bodies are connected. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. Farm to Table Talk, we have an opportunity to talk to people that often wear more than one hat. Uh, but Kate Cavanaugh, I seldom talk to people that wearing as many hats as you're wearing. Uh, you're a farmer, an entrepreneur, a holistic nutritionist, a butcher. And not only that, but you're kind of farming on the East Coast and you've got a butcher shop in Denver Boy, Kate, welcome to Farm to Table Talk. We've got a lot to talk about today. Roger, I am so excited to be here. I just, I've listened to the podcast and I think you're fantastic. And so, well, okay. Well, Kate, that's a good start. You don't have to say the host is fantastic, but I'll take it. It's early in the morning <laughs> here in California and um, nobody's mentioned fantastic yet, but I try. I try. I think the thing is that one thing I will admit to is being curious about people that are filling their lives out on journeys. And uh, and you have a really interesting journey. It's kind of like, okay, Kate, here's your blank sheet. You know, let's make the list, fill it out. And like I said, I rattled through all the things that you're doing. And um, entrepreneurs, something I hear again, farmers, you know, I talked to a lot of them. But when you pay attention to, as you do, uh, holistic nutrition. Uh, there's a certain kind of spirituality kind of uh, perspective in, in, in the way you seem to approach life and business and, and even having the best of the business worlds in some sense. Because if I were going to pick somewhere other than California that I was going to spend some time, the area up around where New York and Vermont come together, where you're farming, is one spot. Colorado be another spot. And I don't wonder. There's many other parts of the country that I've talked to people in Carolinas and Dakotas and so forth that they've got their own little piece of heaven. But you made an interesting balance. So, you know, Kate, kind of help us get to that. You know, you're you're making me struggle with my questions here because. <laughs> Because uh, we need to kind of paint this picture. I mean, how do you come to be having a a farm in, you know, out in Vermont, New York area and a butcher shop and then pursue all of these ventures? And I didn't even mention that uh, you have a podcast, which I've listened to. I think you do a great job in your podcast. And so we'll touch on that, too. But 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 Kate, help me figure a way how to get this on the table. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned at the beginning that you're really guided by curiosity. 
And this is one of my principal values in my life uh, and in my business is, is to find and to follow my own curiosity. And I think that my journey has really unfolded in part with another thing that you said, which is this sort of you know, you can call it spirituality, but this curiosity about the interconnectedness of all of these these different factors, and I look at it as as mind, body, and soil. And my journey really started with meat. I I was a vegetarian for for most of my childhood, and in my very early twenties, I found that my health was rapidly declining. And I had done some reading about meat and decided that my body was really craving for and asking for meat. And I started eating meat that came from farms and ranches. And I visited those farms and ranches and was really guided by a deep sense of curiosity around our food system and around how this single ingredient was completely transforming my health. And as I got deeper and deeper into that curiosity, I decided that I really wanted to learn how to butcher, that the best thing for me was to dive right in to meat and to understanding it at at a really visceral level. And so I did a year-long apprenticeship in whole animal butchery, and I was really struck by the magic of getting to see an animal's life from the inside out. And as I butchered animals from different farms and from different breeds that were eating different things, I had this really cool opportunity to see how these different farming practices were impacting carcass composition. Wow. Wait a minute. We need to, we need to slow down as my hu- just to talk about it. <laughs> yeah. Because, because even yeah. getting there now, I would, uh, you hear often of people that, um, say, um, decide they want to pursue becoming vegetarian. And, and I've, I've talked to many people that have done that. So in your particular journey, though, did you grow up in a household that was otherwise meat eating? And they said, well, Kate's going through a phase and she's just going to, you know, give up meat. And I've heard that so many times, you know, somebody says, well, in their family, and that's, that's fine. And some stay on it and, and manage to, to be healthy. Uh, but but some do like you did and come to the conclusion that something's not quite right. How old were you when you were recognizing that perhaps you were making a mistake for you and that meat needed to be a part of what made you healthy? Yeah, well, Roger, you nailed what happened. My family still ate meat and I chose at a very young age to to not eat meat. And I think it was in my late teens that I really began to recognize that there were some health issues that might be caused by diet. And it still took me another couple of years to come around to the idea of eating meat. And, and in that time, as you were, you were coming to, to that conclusion, were you also on a journey of that you were uh, going off, starting a career or going to going to school or getting married or any of any of these things, yeah. those, those, the other journeys that were in addition to the journey of figuring out what should be on your plate? Absolutely. So I was going through a journey. I started college at a pretty young age. And so I had been in college for a while when I noticed some of these these health issues that were starting to come up. And, you know, I started college at 15. And by the age of 20 was when I started eating meat. And I was 
really lost in college. I honestly started too young and I didn't know what I wanted to do and was drawn to a little bit of everything. And I was studying predominantly biology and physical anthropology, which really came to inform this idea of looking at things through an evolutionary lens and through a lens of biology, both human biology and ecology. Um, and right when I turned 20, I met the man who is my now husband, been together for almost 14 years this year. And he was a master carpenter and I had never met anyone who exuded the kind of balance and groundedness that my husband has. And it attracts, it attracts animals to him. You know, he can just calm a horse instantly. Like he's one of those people that just has a nervous system that I think that other, other beings want to attune to. And he was a master carpenter. And I, was really curious about what it meant to work with your hands as somebody who grew up in a city and was pursuing at the time this sort of academic tract. It stopped me in my tracks. I wanted nothing more than to begin to work with my hands and to experience something completely different. And so there were a lot of factors influencing these choices at that time. Well, I understand how you can come to feel that way then, but then in front of you, um, jumping in and wanting to um, enjoy meat, learn more about meat, and actually start a butcher shop, there, there's a gap in there to fill in, Kate. Uh, how you get from that curiosity and from that recognition that some things need to be different and you want to understand more about meat, but understanding is one thing. But then helping other people understand and disassembling, uh, you know, meat, a beef, or or whatever else, that's quite that that's quite a challenge, I'd think. It is, and I think, but I think it's an interconnected challenge. So I think in disassembling meat and getting this chance to see an animal's lifespan, you know, from the sort of from the inside out, from the carcass backwards. I got to know a lot about regenerative agriculture, and this was really a passion of mine, having studied some ecology in school. I became really interested in grasslands restoration. I'm from the West, and I grew up with a deep love for the prairie and the grasslands in eastern Colorado. And I looked at this through this evolutionary lens that I had developed in college, and I saw that the grasslands and ruminants co-evolved together. And that there was this deep interdependency on these two things for one another, the symbiotic relationship. And we have we had lost that. And as I looked at wildfires and water issues in the West and the the decimation of grasslands in what would have, you know, the the continental United States was comprised of 40% grasslands. Uh, hundreds of years ago, I wanted to see if we could maybe return to that. And as I got into regenerative agriculture, I saw that a lot of people were beginning to mimic the movement of ruminants like bison using cattle. And that by the byproduct of that was really meat. It was a byproduct of grasslands restora restoration and conservation. And so I started asking myself, how can I support these farmers and ranchers that are doing all of this good work in the grasslands in a way that would be really meaningful? And 
the more that I thought about it, the more that I came to one of the things that I think as farmers and ranchers, we we often miss the most is a consistent source of income and financial sustainability. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to provide that and felt at the time that a butcher shop where we could consistently order meat on a weekly basis and cut out for many farmers, which is the trip to the farmer's market that can take up a lot of their time, freeing them to do what they're truly good at, which is to be stewards of the land and of the soil. And so out of that. And so we opened Western Daughters Butcher Shop in Denver in 2013, almost 10 years ago. You know, you you left me at the Kansas border because I was thinking that people, and there's got to be people listening to this podcast that have driven into Denver and good way to come in is Interstate 70. Although you come down 80 and then you go down, I think it's like 25 from Cheyenne mm-hmm. or something like that. Both but great ways to go. In, uh, across the country and you're heading towards Denver and you're in Eastern Colorado, if you can't squint and see the buffalo that are uh, and the bison that are across that, then you just don't have any imagination. Because oh, if, I agree. If I think of anywhere in that I've been, I've been in pretty much all the states where um, there's no place that I could think of that is any better than imagining what it must have looked like because Eastern Colorado needs bison. (laughs) Yes. It's, it's good. It's a big open range and rangeland when you're from some other areas, like we're going to talk about too, when you get into very different from New York or Vermont and people from there come out there and say, gee, how can anybody make a living here, let alone raise any food, but there, there is a story. So I can see kind of, you know, that perspective of being in that part of the country and, and, and the connecting all of these things, but still it's a, to say, okay, let's open a butcher shop though. Did you get on, you know, Craigslist or something and just start looking at butcher shops and, or just say that I'm going to pick this area. Um, how did you end up in Denver opening a, a butcher shop? So I'm from Denver. And so there was a connection there. I was born and raised in Denver. And my husband spent the first part of his life in Denver and then bopped around in North Carolina and Arizona. But I was from Denver and I really saw exactly what you just said, which is you look across the Eastern Plains and it feels like there's something missing. Mm -hmm. And that is bison or ruminants. And having grown up there, I really wanted to reimagine a future in which those grasslands might once again be populated by ruminants helping to restore them, that we're helping to regenerate topsoil, that we're helping to recapture water that is so frequently lost in the high desert, which is what the, the plains of Colorado are. Yeah. But then you pick a spot that you're going to, you're going to open a butcher shop. So that, that still is a big plunge. I mean, I understand where you're coming from and, and yet you've never done that before. Right. I mean, so no. you have to get a, get to get a building and knives yes. and tables and, and, and <laughs> grinders, and table butchers, saws, you know, yeah. get the white aprons and uh, all of that sort of thing. Um, that's, that's quite an undertaking. 
and perhaps have to convince somebody, if it's not a banker, your husband, friends, and neighbors, that um, Kate knows what she's doing here because <laughs> she's going to open a butcher shop. Yeah. That's, that's a, a pretty daring step. I think that I had the naivety of youth on my side. And I'll say, I'll say that really firmly. You know, I was, I was 24 when we opened the butcher shop. And I think that both my husband, who's a bit older than I am, but we both had stars in our eyes. And I think we both have a joy of, of plunging in with both feet. And we bootstrapped money that we had saved together and a little bit from friends and from family and just did everything really small and hoped for the best. And there was a lot that we didn't know. And there was a lot of convincing we had to do, not just of friends and family, but also of farmers and ranchers. When we were cold calling people in that first year and telling people this idea, because we're a whole animal butcher shop. So we bring in whole animals and we break them down in-house, nose to tail. And so we buy whole carcasses from ranchers. And this was this was at the time, there's some more whole animal butcher shops now, but there weren't very many left. I mean, this is a very old way of doing things. And we had to do some, we had to do some convincing. And to be really honest that over the years, this business has not been easy. It is very much like farming and ranching, a very difficult business with very tight margins. And there was a lot of learning that we had to do along the way. So it looked like from your website, I was I was looking at some of the pictures there. It looks to me like you were not far from the old Elich Gardens. Is that did I get that about right? Yeah, you did get that about right. We're a little bit we're a little bit east of there, closer to I twenty five, and what ended up being a rather hip and happening neighborhood in Denver, with which I think really helped our cause. And and we got in very early, and we have a very kind landlord. You know, I mean, in a lot of ways, luck has been on our side, as well as a tenacity to stick around because there have been times when it's been by the the skin of our teeth. So again, you got a building, and and then you have to start, and I'm sure there's some permits and all that kind of oh, thing yeah. that you have you have to do. Um, but then you actually need the meat. So you would go to the ranchers themselves and and um, and they had to have it slaughtered processed. If you were taking a quarter That's or correct. something of beef or you're taking a, a whole lamb or a, or a pig, uh, they had to go to a locker plant or someplace to be able to get it into that shape for you. Would that I get that right? That's correct. And so it really was this relationship building. We'd go out and we'd visit these farms and ranches and we kind of, we had a set of our own standards and we'd talk with them and and the people that we met really ended up becoming our our good friends and our family. And we still work with most of the farms and ranches that we started out with on day one, which I think is incredible. And over the course of nine years, we've actually put over $5 million back into the hands of farmers and ranchers. So 50 cents of every dollar you spend at Western Daughters goes back to a farmer or rancher. But in order to facilitate that, you have to build relationships, not just with farmers and ranchers, but with slaughterhouses, processing plants, locker plants, whatever you want to call them. And so in Colorado, you know, di- laws differ state by state, but in Colorado, you have to have USDA inspected meat if you're bringing in quarters or halves or whole animals into a butcher shop. And we're lucky in Colorado in that we have 
more, albeit not enough. I think that this is a real pinch point in the food system is the the processor. And so we're lucky enough to have some small family-owned processing plants in Colorado. And we really got to know them and to work with them as well, because that is an equally important step in meat's journey from farm to, to butcher shop. Now, did you have to hire uh, an experienced butcher to start with? Uh, somebody that's been, or you just had to learn to be meat cutters yourself? Yeah. So, so I did an apprenticeship. I spent one year in apprenticeship. So did my husband. And so we both are meat cutters. I think now we might be considered uh, master butchers. I don't know. I've cut up many thousands of animals over the years, uh, beef, lamb, pork, bison, all of it. And so that is, and we have a very different way of doing things. We really focus on yields, my husband and I. So whereas the industry standard sits at about a 67% yield, depending on how we're butchering and who we're butchering for, my husband and I get around an 87% yield. Wow. Wow. That's that's amazing. So if if I'm in Denver now and, and I walk into your shop, you have the glass case showing cuts uh, that are, you've got some that are already prepared and do you do some Absolutely. custom too? Absolutely. Both of those things. So we set our cases and I think of them like jewelry cases, right? That these are our shining jewels. We often consider that we eat with our eyes first. And so we want people to get to see and experience the meat. So you can come in and there's cases, but we also do custom cutting. And I think that this is really important because we provide people, you know, one of my favorite stories around this was one Christmas season, there was a woman from, I think she was from Norway or Finland, somewhere, somewhere in those Nordic, Nordic countries. And she was an older woman. And for many years, she had lived in the United States and she had not had this, and I'm, I'm not going to say this correctly, this Flagstag um, pork loin that they do. And she called us and asked if it was something that we could do. And we researched it and we were able to recreate that for her. And so one of my biggest passions is that aspect of being able to custom cut and to to give people cuts of meat that they would find in their home countries or that they found many, many years ago. So once you have and the shop open and you're talking to people, uh, we've gone through an unusual time. And uh, how was how was your business affected by all the shutdowns that took place with COVID? Yeah, so our business was actually positively impacted. Uh, as we saw some of the meat shortages hit grocery stores, our only limiting factor was how much space we had and how much labor we had to process more animals. And so as the pandemic hit, all we had to do was call up our farmers and we have a great relationship with our processors. So we'd get another slot, two slots at our processor and just bring in more beef, more pork. And we actually, during that time, built another walk-in cooler in order to accommodate the increase in volume. And like many businesses, ours is a business that requires some scale. It does best from a financial perspective when, when we hit a certain volume. And so that economy of scale really served us well. And I think that we're, we're traversing a time right now where food shortages are being discussed. I, we've sort of seen them in the last two years and being discussed coming up. And so it's an interesting time 
to be in the space to talk about getting to know your farmer and buying meat directly from them or from a local butcher. So, so interesting. And, and I guess one more question, then I want to transition on how you find yourself farming and living in Vermont and, and New York areas as well. Um, and that is, I guess, um, the questions you've run into, has anything surprised you? Do you, do you have people um, coming in and wanting you to tell them the story about how each of the products are produced? Uh, or have they just come to accept that they know that you're being careful and they're, they just mm. kind of trust you and you don't really get a chance to tell the stories very often? I think this is the most beautiful aspect of the butcher shop. And it was really my passion from the get go is storytelling. And, you know, I find that that wanting to tell stories comes out in each season of my life. And when we opened the butcher shop, I saw a really unique opportunity to bridge urban and rural environments. Mm -hmm. And I think if you've if you've lived in a city or if you've lived in the country, you see that there, there's kind of this this diaspora between these two places. And I thought that the butcher shop is a really unique opportunity to do that, that we can bring in the stories of our food system, whether that's farmers and ranchers or our processors, and tell these stories about how food moves from soil to table and all the different hands that touch it along the way and all the different practices that change it. And we get to tell this to our consumers. And in turn, our consumers would come back and share their stories about how bringing this meat into their homes had changed the lay of their tables or how it had changed their health or how it had informed their tr traditions. And we got to tell those stories in return to our farmers and ranchers and processors. And so I really view the butcher shop as a sort of portal between these two spaces of storytelling. But that being said, you know, after 10 years in business, customers came to us for a wide variety of reasons. Some found us because of our philosophical ideas about meat. Others found us through health reasons that they were really looking for grass-fed meat or they were looking to eat liver to improve their fertility or they wanted bone broth to improve their joint health. Or people just came to us because our meat tastes really good. And so there's a lot of different ways that people found us. And I find that after almost 10 years in business, there is a foundation of trust there. Well, that kind of touched on something that you, you've indicated um, an interest uh, yourself in nutrition. And you talk on your website, you mentioned the word holistic nutritionist. And, and now you're touching on an area that people are kind of drawing you into it. Um, and you have an opportunity to share with them what you've learned. And, and so how are you taking care of that part of the space? Because what you've discussed so far, you can talk about kind of a straight through business plan. We have products that consumers want. We can put it in the shape that they want it and the forms that they want it. But this extra is, is something more, this this perspective, this broader role that meat can play in, in their diets and asking more than just what, you know, how it affects the farmers, but how does it affect um, their health and from your, what you've learned. Um, so that, that's, 
that's new too, Kate. You've got so many um, layers here to this. So this how do you, is how do you um, how do you keep up on it? Um, how are you able to to understand more and more what people are learning about the role me plays and so forth, and and then be able to share that? That wasn't a very good question, Kate. I'm, no, I mean not to ask you as a podcaster, but there just there's just something there. It feels like it's kind of an intangible area there, an important area, but it's a dimension that you're layering on that is is different than just having meat products. Yeah, it is, and I think while it's a little bit intangible, I think there's an aspect of it that is sort of coalescing that we're seeing it begin to become more tangible in this space. And so I sought out a holistic nutritionist certification. um, And I spent two years researching and going to school, sort of in the middle of my butcher shop journey. And one of the things that I had seen through the lens of regenerative agriculture was that meat has this incredible power to heal land. And one of my favorite stories to tell around this is we we sometimes work with this ranch in Montana. And when they took over the ranch, there was a stream that the locals talked about that, that had been gone from that ranch for many decades. And through a holistic management of, of his cattle, this rancher was able to bring that stream back into existence. And so this stream came back. And I just... Every time, and as a farmer too, I see how much resiliency there is in nature, and I see the power of of ruminants and of livestock in general to truly begin to heal land, to build topsoil, to increase the capacity for water absorption, to increase nutrient density that has been lost over the decades. And I see that mirrored as an analog in human health. So as I was sort of viewing through the lens of regenerative agriculture, the ability of meat to truly heal land, to increase water absorption, to build topsoil, to add nutrient density and and good, healthy commensal bacteria back into soil, I saw a mirror for human health, both in the resiliency that you see in nature. It's important to remember in this that we are a part of nature uh, as human beings. And I really saw these analogs between human health that meat was so able to give to us a, a deeper level of nutrient density to add trace minerals that are often missing from our diet, especially things like organ meats that are giving you copper and selenium and manganese and these beautiful fat soluble vitamins in, in the fat of animals like vitamin A and D and E and K. And so I saw all of these analogs between human health. And, and I, I told the story about this improving a, the woman's fertility. And it's also improving land fertility. And so I view these two things as so deeply interconnected. And meat has long been vilified in the human health sector. And, and there's a lot, there's a lot at play there. And there's some really beautiful that sort of speak to this effect, including the case against sugar by Gary Taubes and Nina Teicholz's The Big Fat Surprise. But when I look at it through my lens as a farmer, where I want to mimic the movement of animals across grasslands from that evolutionary perspective, I also look at the evolutionary of humans and what we 
have been eating for the majority of the 200,000 years of modern Homo sapien. And that looks like a lot of meat and a lot of animal foods. And I found through working with customers and, and just through my own in of one experience that meat was vastly improving my health. And to see the interconnection between those two things, that's really what makes me curious to constantly be teasing out how the health of land and the health of bodies are connected. Well, you say that so well. And I think that when you start going down this road and explaining all the ways that meat's good for you, we have to just quickly touch on the fact that lately there's been people that are critical of livestock. And I would imagine that in your butcher shop, some people have come in and say, gee, I understand I should be eating less meat to be able to help the climate. Have, mm-hmm. have you encountered any of that sort of pushback and comments? Oh, absolutely. I've encountered a lot of pushback over the years and Western Daughters, the butcher shop has been lucky enough to have some really big press over the years. And when we've done some of those big articles, I always get an influx of emails and social media messages, as well as some some snail mail uh, to the effect of, of how meat is destroying the climate. And I think that we are coming up against as people that are invested in livestock, both regenerative and conventional, a big narrative that meat is bad, that it's bad for the planet, that it's bad for our bodies. And we're seeing the the rise of plant-based meat. And this is something I'm, I'm very passionate about, though I do want to tread gently. And a lot of this came out originally in 2006, they're, they're, the Food and Agriculture Organization, which is a division of the United Nations, came out with a, a report titled Livestock's Long Shadow. And in that report, it attributed 18% of greenhouse gas emissions to livestock, which is a number that the, the reporters retracted after this. And this is still the study that's used talking about greenhouse gas emissions. And those numbers look a lot different. And I think there's been some really beautiful studies. You know, when I think about Will Harris at White Oak Pastures recently did a a full life cycle analysis of their farm down in Georgia and found that his livestock farm where they grow cattle and poultry and pigs was actually carbon negative, that they were sequestering carbon in the soil. And so I think there's a real misconception about livestock's role in the environment. But it's important to remember with about 40% of the world being covered in grasslands, those grasslands all co-evolved with some version of a ruminant or a grass-eating species that was helping to get those grass better grow so that they could sequester more carbon into the soil. And so this is something that you can't tease apart. And, you know, 150 years ago, millions upon millions of bison that would have outnumbered the amount of cattle that are here in the U.S. now roamed the plains. And so there's a symbiotic relationship here. And I really believe that there's some... There's some erroneous information out there about livestock and greenhouse gas emissions, and there's some nuance in relationship that people are missing. 
Oh, absolutely. And we could go on on that, and we will have to even have another conversation uh, about it sometime. But where I always get to is that in addition to everything you've just said, I just look at the world and you look at the areas of the earth that can't really grow crops. It's like some people think that they're going to yes. go out in eastern Colorado and grow, you know, almonds you cannot. and pistachios and, you know, they're not. They're not. No. Uh, much of the world, the best thing that you can do is have it be rangeland and pasture land. And fortunately, we've got animals that can turn that into the foods we need. But let's now jump across to the fact that you're living much of the time now uh, on the border, I guess, or close to the border, what, of New York and Vermont, and and you're farming there, is that right? That is correct. And it, it's, 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 a, it's a kind of long journey to get here. But yes, I'm, in, I'm um, just south of the Adirondack Range in New York, uh, about two miles from the Vermont border. Well, let's do the short version of getting there because yeah. there's a there's a lot of country between there and North Denver, Colorado. Um, how did you pick that spot? I mean, again, there's a lot of lot of ground you could go to, uh, but how did you end up being there? I'll make the story short because it burned. Yeah the West. And what I tell people is it really cleaved my heart in two. And my greatest desire in this world is that we will find a way back out West to ranch in what I consider my home. But when my husband and I opened the butcher shop, our biggest desire was to end up on the farm. That this, we both grew up in a city, but our dream was really to become farmers, to become ranchers. And we were lucky enough that our ranchers let us work with them very closely over the years. And we got to learn a lot about, about farming from them. And about seven years into the butcher shop, my husband and I really realized that we were unhappy, that we really desperately wanted to be farming. And that if we were to wait until we could afford land out West, it could be a very long time until we were farming. And so we started visiting places where we could actually afford a little bit of land and we don't have a ton here, but we have, we have 65 acres and we have a house and we have a couple of barns and, and this was one of those places and something came up that felt very aligned and we chose it. But in all of my honest assessment, I don't, I don't know if it, I don't know if it was the right choice though. I love being here and my heart still aches to be back out West. Well, then you will someday. Yeah. Or for the time being, you get to be both places. And and on your farm in the east, do you have animals? We do. So we have we have quite the menagerie. Um, <laughs> my husband and I specialize in raising uh, pork and poultry that doesn't have any corn, soy, or sunflower. And we look at this as low polyunsaturated fatty acid pork and poultry. And so when we're talking about PUFAs, polyunsaturated fatty acids, but we're going to call them PUFAs to keep it short. These are more inflammatory uh, omega-6 or linoleic acid fats. And so we really want to focus on a higher omega-3 content. And from an evolutionary perspective, our ratio of omega-3s to omega-6s would have been about one to one or one to two. And currently in the United States, that looks about you know, 
18 omega-6 fats to one omega-3 fat. So we're wildly away from that ratio. And so one of our passions is raising this low PUFA pork and poultry. And we really want to do experiment with that, having seen, again, all of these animals from the inside out. We also raise goats, mostly for meat, um, though we will milk them occasionally when they're in milk and as brush control. And I think that goats are such an incredible ruminant because they are, they're a browser and not a grazer. And so whereas a grazer might dip into 30 to 50 species per day of plant matter, goats will cover 230 species of plant matter and are really good at keeping brush down. And I'm just really passionate about them as a ruminant and as a food source. And they are the most consumed red meat in the world. They're just not very widely consumed here in the United States. Um, and then we have a couple of, I call them personal cows. And so they are, they're beef for our personal use, but we don't sell beef. Wow. What a, what a life you're living. And, and really just trying to take that all in. I suppose you see your fair share of airports then running back to Colorado and then back out there. We, you know, we actually don't. Um, we are homebodies and we are really lucky in that we have an incredible general manager at Western Daughters. We run all of the back end. Anything that can be done from here is done from here by us. Um, we still order all of the protein and talk to farmers, but my husband goes out about once a quarter and I often stay here on the farm. Yeah. Well, fortunately, we can still hear some of your stories because in addition to now having you on Farm to Table Talk, and I'm surprised, Kate, we didn't do this earlier, but um, I have you on the, on my show, but you have your own show too. So tell people of your, about your podcast so, so that they can uh, listen to you and hear more of the stories and to more depth than perhaps than we've gotten to today. Yeah. So I, I started a groundwork it's called the Groundwork Podcast, and you can find it at groundworkcollective.com or at Groundwork Collective on Instagram. And it's also available wherever you listen to podcasts. And, you know, we touched earlier on my passion is really around storytelling. I think that this is such a special format, and I am particularly passionate about long form audio. I really like long form anyway. I read a lot of books and I enjoy a lot of podcasts myself um, and longer form articles. But it takes time for stories to unfurl. And I know that you'll know that better than anybody. And so I was really curious to take this lens of what I call for the podcast, Mind, Body, and Soil, just kind of my, my play on mind, body, soul. And the interconnectedness between these three spaces, so much of which we've, we've covered here on this podcast, and to get to kind of through the, through a my value of curiosity, really explore the connections between these, these three things. And so on the podcast, I have a really eclectic mix of people 
lot of farmers and ranchers and conservation experts, but nutrition experts as well. Um, I recently had one, we talked about the nervous system and meditation and the comparison of our nervous system actually to mycelial networks. And so for me, it's just sort of about uncovering all these little connections and really getting to explore with my audience through that lens of curiosity. And this was, this was actually born in conjunction with a website that my husband and I helped build to help connect farmers and consumers, uh, which you can find at nearhome.groundworkcollective.com. And it's a farm finder and there's 2000 regenerative farms on there and you can find people by filtering out. And so the, everything it, it, for me is really motivated by the sense of wanting to better connect. Wow. Uh, you know what? Maybe that's why I really like uh, listening to your podcast too. I've because I enjoy the long form conversations too. And people have asked me, "Well, how do you decide how long your podcasts are going to go?" They may be asking that right now because it goes. It started out. I was trying to do them all in less than thirty minutes, and it takes longer sometimes to get to the conversations. And what I like about a good podcast like yours, and, and even I re-listen to my own sometimes, too. I do, too. Is that you can take off for a hike. And in my case, the American River is just over here a block or two. And I can walk along the trail of the American River and listen to be in on a conversation. And it's uh, hard for me to think of something, a better way to spend your time than, than to enjoy that and take, take that take that journey. And Gosh, I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, well, you such know a gift. And and you're taking us on a journey now. And and now when you stop to think about it, Kate, there are people that are listening to us that um, out doing their hike or doing their chores or driving someplace or you know, uh, God forbid, they're commuting somewhere. <laughs> you know, they're not having to commute somewhere. But some of them might some even be farming. In, yeah, and 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 thank you for giving us all something to think about and admire what you're doing on your journey. And and I, I want to thank you for being on Farm to Table Talk and hope you'll come back and join me again sometime. Oh, my gosh, Roger, it has been such a pleasure. I am just so honored to be a part of the incredible work that you do here on Farm to Table Talk and to be amongst the amazing guests that I've listened to you to you have on. And so I'm just really grateful. And, and I hope, I hope we can have another conversation again. Well, we will. And if I'm in Denver, I'm going to jump into the butcher shop and I will be going to Denver again. I'll come by there. I hope I can get out to uh, Vermont, New York in that area too. Maybe see you folks someday. But, well, we would love uh, to have you. You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. 